Welcome to another Dragonlance Hangout. It is Lenara's Brook Green the 26th. My name is Adam. Of course, you all probably already know that. And uh, this is where we just sort of hang out and talk a little bit of Dragonlance. Sounds like a good time to me. I don't really have anything else going on. That's not entirely true. I have a recipe that I'm sort of prepping. It's a two-day recipe. I had to make my own sausages. And it's a whole process, but it's the last recipe in Leaves from the In the Last Home that I'm finally getting around to. It's like uh, like kielbasa and sauerkraut, basically. But anyway, it's taken me uh, quite a bit of time. Let me throw on some music here. Let's get some music in the background. Not too loud. I want you to hear it though. All right, Jeff, thanks for joining live. Good to see you. Anyone else who gets here throughout the course of this stream, how you doing? Thanks for tuning in. Say hi for me in the chat. Uh, grab a seat, pull up a chair. Let's, uh, let's have a good time. All right, so there's a bunch of things going on in my life right now. First and foremost is those stupid recipes. <laughs> they, it takes preparation, right? And I mean, it's one thing just to sort of have the anxiety of making a new recipe and hoping that it doesn't suck. It's another thing entirely doing it on camera. So you have to make sure the camera's set up just perfectly. You get all the process of making it each individual shot. And then you have to do the script and the voiceover and edit it all together. And it becomes, it becomes a whole weekend, ultimately. I mean, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a frustrating big deal. And I'm trying to do this where I have one either mail time or recipe episode every week. And then, you know, I expect some mail to come in. It doesn't actually come in. And then I have to hurry up and do a bunch of extra recipes in order to sort of have it paced out properly. Lots of stress going into this channel, which is supposed to just be about fun, right? <laughs> Apparently, I don't know what that means. It's always just, you know, always racing to the last. But then there's also that side of it where you're you're sort of planning on what you're going to do next, what recipes you want to tackle next, and every single version of the leave lost um, I'm sorry leaves from the end of the last homes source books. There's three of them, and then I even believe the history of the Dragonlance saga has recipes in it as well. And so there's ultimately four books with a bunch of Dragonlance specific recipes in them. And on top of that is the Heroes Feasts, the Dungeons and Dragons recipe book, which I have, and I've started doing a couple of those. Um, thanks to Chris for having sent that to me. So I've got all sorts of recipes that are Dungeons and Dragons slash Dragonlance oriented that I'm going to be knocking out, in addition to the entire playlist that I have existing already. So look forward to those as I have time and the means to put them together. Depending on when I'm making them, you know, inflation has really skyrocketed in the past couple years. And so that I remember doing one, it was like a fruit bowl or something like a quantity fruit feast or something like that. Confetti meal or I can't remember now. Anyway, it ended up being like 60 bucks worth of fruit in order to make that one recipe. Now, 60 bucks isn't going to break your bank, but it is a significant amount of money for a fruit bowl for a recipe that's going to go on a website or, you know, online on YouTube and only have a lifespan of, say, maybe a week because no one's actively searching for how do I make the Quilinesty confetti fruit bowl, you know? It's just one of those things where you have to sort of gauge the cost time value 
of whether or not it's even worth putting anything out in the first place. That's kind of where I am with this channel. <laughs> I'm honestly reevaluating how much time should I be putting into this thing? Because I've been going furiously for the past couple years and it hasn't really abated at all. All right, so yesterday I just got back from watching Shazam 2. Didn't want to see it. I wanted to see Dungeons and Dragons because I've heard that it's an amazing film. Every reviewer that I have seen and trust their opinions has said that it's a surprisingly great, enjoyable time, which struck me as really strange because Hasbro put up the, their studio for sale after they finished it. So I was really surprised that they would try to sell off their movie division while they were just knocking out an incredible, like the first good Dungeons & Dragons movie. Think about that for a second too, because in my memory, there's three Dungeons & Dragons films and the dragon that's animated. And all of them were garbage. Like not one of them you could hold up and say, this is a pinnacle of filmmaking. You know, they all blow. So if they all suck and this one is great, which reviewers say that it is, well, then why would you sell your studio off? I mean, arguably, because, you know, you're at the height of your sort of pinnacle for making films, so it's at its most valuable in this moment, and maybe you're trying to cash in on that. But then there's all those rumors about a bunch of different Dungeons & Dragons series being in development, including the suggestion about the Joe Maganello one. So, who knows? Anyway, I looked for that damn film, not realizing that it's not even out until next week. <laughs> so expect that review, like a quick sort of, you know, reaction review on the Hangout. And I'll... I, because this isn't a Dragon... I'm sorry, this isn't a Dungeons & Dragons channel. This is a Dragonlance channel. I'm probably not going to review the Dungeons & Dragons film on this channel. But if you see me online, I have other channels where I will review it. So... You know, you're welcome to explore that. So Shazam 2, I watched the first. I have no connection to Shazam. I've always been a Superman guy. Just how I grew up. <laughs> it's how I was raised. What do you want? Shazam has always been sort of ridiculous to me. The first film I liked because it was heartwarming. This film, Shazam 2, like Fury of the Gods or whatever. Meh. It wasn't very good. <laughs> it just, it was meh at best. Let me know what you think if you saw it, because again, I don't have any real emotional connection with Shazam, so I don't know what I expected, but I did expect it to be better than it actually was. And I know there's a bunch of hubbub about whether or not The Rock had, you know, influence on squashing certain character crossover or whatever, but it's just the right. It comes down to the writing, you know. And if the writing's not solid and the story's not solid, then the execution's really not going to be solid. So I was a little disappointed with that. And this past week, I pre-ordered The Last of Us Part 1. Again, this is not a Last of Us channel. It's a Dragonlance channel, but I'm just sort of at the top of these hangouts. I want to sort of just talk about the past week and, you know, sort of my life a little bit. I'm really looking forward to that because I don't have a PlayStation, so I've been waiting for it to come out on PC so I can give it a go and see what it's all about. I loved the series on HBO, and so I'm really looking forward to playing Last of Us Part 1. Let me know what you guys thought about that if you've ever played it yourselves, but again, that's going to be on a different channel. However, there are Dragonlance games that just came out 
um, not just came out, but were, are going to be re-released on Steam and GOG. And that's the silver box, not the gold box, the silver box. So that's your War of the Lands, your Heroes of the Lands, your Dragons of um, Flame, and there's one other one. But you can look them up online and see what they are. But um, also Dragon Strike, the 3D dragon-mounted flying combat game. That's also coming out finally. So I had played them on this channel through a DOS emulator. It'll be really nice to be able to buy the actual professionally converted versions of the game so I can play them as intended without having to deal with a bunch of technology and uh, you know, complications and having to plug in DOS program code. Because that was kind of a pain in the face, to be quite honest. And I want to figure out how to play that Dragon Strike game because I loved it. I love playing it as far as I can get, but there's one part where I just can't get past because I'm just not good. But the promise of flying Dragon back against other sort of, you know, Dragon Riders or Dragon High Lords is an exciting thought. Like, that's what drew me to Dragonlands in the first place. And to be able to do that on a game? Hell yes, please. Hook a brother up. I want some now. <laughs> All right. So anyway, that was my past week. Stuff that sort of happened and, you know, little tidbits of news that popped up that I found relatively interesting. Been keeping myself busy doing a bunch of Dragonlance stuff. And that's the other side of this, is that aside from just celebrating Dragonlance on this channel, like, I, I read a lot. And so, you know, at any time, like, I try to do a Dragonlance book every other week. Sometimes that shifts a little bit, so I do more than that. But it really just depends on my time and my schedule. Um, I feel like I'm fortunate in that my industry is feast or famine. And so when I'm really, really busy, I don't have a ton of time. But when it's slow, I can just spend tons of time doing nothing but reading. And it's just a great way of, of uh, not just delving into these other, you know, sort of fictional worlds, fantasy worlds. But it's another way of just, uh, you know, growing your own imagination figure out possibilities of storylines and stuff. And, and that's part of what really is going to be the focus of this particular Dragonlance Hangout episode. I'm now getting around to the final episode here. And that is what makes Dragonlance Dragonlance? And have you guys heard about the Dragonlance starter set? Because I know it's... There, I'm going to get into it here in a second. But there was some rumor that there was going to be one released in 30.5th edition through Sovereign Press... But there was one released in 2nd edition. And if you don't know about it, we're going to go through it a little bit here. I was thinking about doing like a playthrough on this channel with it, but I got so much other crap going on, I don't really have time to do that. So we'll get into it. It'll be fun. All right. So let me turn this off. Let's get into what makes Dragonlance Dragonlance. And I would love to hear from you guys in live chat if you happen to be tuning in live. Um, what elements of storytelling and narrative define Dragonlance for you? So that if those were taken away, it would no longer be Dragonlance. And I've had this discussion in many different forms, most recently specifically about 5th edition Dragonlance. And how, personally, I don't think it fits the Dragonlance bill 100%. It's close. That's yeah, like 75%, in my opinion-ish. But it's not quite fully Dragonlance for a number of reasons. But that forces me to sort of recontextualize. Well, then what does it mean to be Dragonlance? What is it about Dragonlance that sets it apart from 
any other setting. And you can strip it down to specific elements, but ultimately it's the totality of those elements, in my opinion, that really makes Dragonlance Dragonlance, right? So I thought the best way of doing this was to go to, I know some of you are going to be crying over this, go to the Saga system, Dragonlance Fifth Age Dramatic Adventure game, and in book one, it breaks down what makes a Dragonlance game. And it really fits perfectly for the way that I see Dragonlance. And this is going to reflect not just the gaming side of it, but also the novels as well. And it really solidifies. And yes, you're going to have individual elements of like these in other settings, but with them all together, that's what creates a really great Dragonlance story. So first and foremost, it's character depth. Yes, you get that anywhere, you know, for people that care. But you want background. You want motivation. And you can't really get that just with an alignment. And it's really incumbent upon initially the players, but then also the dungeon master wanting to then exploit those backgrounds, which make it good or not. So one thing that I always do with characters, um, whether they're my characters or their players in a game of mine is I really want to know about the background of the world that they came in. How did their character experience their own growth? You know, growing up your informative years, was there a, an insigning incident in their life that really changed the way they look at uh, the world around them? And you wouldn't really understand how to fit that if you didn't know Dragonlance. If you didn't read Dragonlance novels, you didn't know the geography or the, the different societies and different people that grow up in Dragonlance. And so that's where it's important to have Dungeon Master's assistance in some cases to really flesh that out. Not just that, but you also have to think of eras of play and, and what's happening in specific eras and specific locations. Is it realistic to have a, a dwarf, a Hylar dwarf from Thorbarden in northern Salamnia uh, during the War of the Lands? Arguably, no. I mean, you can always come up with reasons for it. You can come up with story beats for it. But you may have, like, Kaelin dwarves, but Thorbarden, they lock themselves away. So why would they go out wandering, you know? So it's little things like that. Sylvanesty Elves is another example. Why would you have a Sylvanesty Elf wandering around in, in Salamnia? Like, they're locked away in their little world, and then they fled to Southern Aragoth. There's no reason why there would just be a rando, in good standing, you know, Sylvanesty elf, you know, that, that knows the royal family and stuff, just wandering around. And I think it's interesting because when you start DLA for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, uh, the Dragonlance Adventures, they say that you, like, elves are going to be Quilinisty elves, not Kaganisty or Sylvanesty. They have to be Quilinisty elves. Because those are the only elves that aren't wildly bigoted and willing to, you know, interact with other races more, even though they are pretty restricted, than other elven races. So little things like that are part of what make Dragonlance Dragonlance, understanding the environment and how your character fits into it. But then also the overarching theme, the three pillars of what makes Dragonlance Dragonlance, good, neutrality, and evil, and how they interact with each other, and how the goal of Dragonlance is not ever to get rid of one or the other, but to maintain balance through each of them. And that's an interesting dichotomy in contrast to every other 
Dungeons and Dragons game I've ever played. It's always been that trope of, well, the good guys have to defeat the evil guys and just wipe them out of existence. And then you'll be in your utopia and everything will be happy. That's not Dragonlance. We don't want that in Dragonlance. Dragonlance maintains balance. So you have evil, you have good, neither shall be more powerful or more prevalent. And when they are, i.e. Istar in the Age of um, Might and um, um, in the Age of Despair with the War of the Lands, you have counterbalances in order to push them back into neutrality and balance. And ultimately, the entire campaign was based around the idea of Tannis, Lorana, and Kitiara, like literally representing that very balance itself. So you always need to make sure in a Dragonlance game, in order for it to feel like Dragonlance, that you have those dominant alignments or events that encapsulate those good, evil, or neutrality uh, ideas and then play with them a little bit, you know, really explore them. So, for example, in my Saga uh, mini campaign, it was a four-story arc. It started out with a bunch of heroes that seemed to be defending a town from um, Sable or, or some other dragon overlord, uh, lesser or greater. It ended up being it was an old friend of one of the players who started this entire thing, not a dragon overlord. And it was just him wanting to get revenge on dragon overlords by instigating a war between them. Now, that has little to do with good overcoming evil and everything to do with a good character trying to reconcile their friend's motivations and not wanting to kill their friend while simultaneously trying to stop them to maintain some preserve some semblance of balance. In the uh, Shadow of the Dragon Queen adventure that I'm running right now, that one is very much centered around the idea of, the, of course, the War of the Lance beginning. Calaman, is it going to stand or fall under the might of the dragon armies? And then that's really where we're first getting that idea of good versus evil. But you have to break down, strip down the story to a character level and understand that sometimes these characters are going to act against their actual own self-interest in some cases, but also against their classes in some cases. And I'm not one to, I'm not a dungeon master who is going to try to steer a character in a specific direction. I'll set up a scenario and just sort of hands off, step back and say, okay, here it is. But in, in one case, there is a Slamic Knight that was interrogating people and he almost started beating the, um, the prisoner. And so it took the players amongst each other to say like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what it, I mean, do whatever you want to do, but understand that's not what a Solemnity Knight would normally do. And, you know, another case of where the, they'd captured a hobgoblin who was in training to be a member of the dragon army. And they had to come to terms with, well, are we going to murder this guy now that he's given up or are we going to let him go? You know, what would a good character do with the greater good in mind in that scenario? Is it outright murder? because they're not a combatant anymore? Or is it let them go and hope that they don't rejoin the dragon army and come get you later, you know? So I love those ideas of what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be neutral? What does it mean to be evil? And what are the choices that you can make as a character to really um, not just push the boundary of what you as a player would like to see done, but then... Um, oh, what's the word? Um... 
um, compromise with what you want to see happen versus what the character would actually do. Because ultimately, when you're playing a role-playing game, you're not playing you, you're playing the character. And the best players I've ever played with, one of them is in chat right now, good to see you, Derek. Um, the best players are able to divorce themselves from their character and really latch on to what what motivates the character, what are the lines they're willing to cross, and what are the lines they're not willing to cross. Um, you know, we had a, a really good adventure with playing uh, Tracy Hickman's Extreme Dungeon Mastery role-playing game. It was uh, it meant to be a one-off, ended up being a two-off adventure game, where um, at the very end of it, Anita Slamnia had to let everyone go and sacrifice himself so that they could survive this sort of undead onslaught. That's one of the aspects of, or I mean, two of the aspects, actually, of what make Dragonlance Dragonlance, and that's tragedy and heroism. So tragedy, we all can identify with moments in Dragonlance stories that are wildly impactful and emotionally resonant with us. And that could either be Sturm, it could be Flint, it could be Tasselhoff, it could be Tannis. You know, we have so many moments with these characters that we've grown to really care about and love and laugh along with and sort of be afraid on behalf of that when they do meet their end, it hurts us emotionally as the readers. Having that play out in a game, it's a Dragonlance campaign, is the best possible ending for anyone. So in last week, I'm sorry, not last week, but the last time I played the Shadow of the Dragon Queen, it was almost a total par player, uh, total party kill situation where we did lose some players. And that's going to be sort of rounded out in the upcoming game next week. But knowing that sometimes choices you make lead to ultimate destruction of the character force you to contextualize your decisions. You know, you have to really evaluate. And then, what's the impact? What's the lasting impact of these characters? This is going to be, I think, the ninth episode. So most of these characters have been playing for at least six different sessions of three plus hours, right? That's a long time to live with a character. How is that character not just going to impact the player, but how is that character's death going to impact the rest of the party? Because everything that's happened in that campaign up to that point has been influenced by that character. And so there has to be some sort of ripple effect of loss, right? We see that with the novels and in best Dragonlance games to make them really feel like Dragonlance, you feel those losses in the game as well. And so part of that's done, of course, through role-playing of players, but also how the dungeon master then allows that to influence the ongoing narrative of the story. How does that character's loss or the loss of that character then infect, you know, how, how, does, how does it emotionally strike the non-playing characters that you've been playing with this whole time? And in my games and hopefully in yours, it's going to have a big impact because it's like losing a friend. And for anyone who's ever lost anyone in their life, which is probably everyone watching this, it hurts, you know, it affects you. And so I like seeing that. I mean, this entire campaign was based, the Shadow of the Dragon campaign, uh, Dragon Queen campaign was based around the idea of loss because we all lost Ibsen Greenshield or whatever his name was. And that was the catalyst of bringing all the heroes together and of course, the jumping off point for the adventure itself. Um, and then of course, other than tragedy and heroism is romance. 
This is one that can be a little bit difficult for some people to play into in a role-playing game because in a lot of cases, and again, this is probably just my games, I usually have more guy players than I have girl players. And it's easier for some players, regardless of your identity or your um, sexual preference, it's harder in my own experience um, playing with guys for them, you know, because sometimes guys will play girl characters to then be romantic with another male player. Not everyone, but it does, it, it becomes a thing for some people. It's a bit of a hurdle for them to get over. Um, and ultimately, what about adding in queer representation between characters for romance? That hasn't happened a lot with Dragonlance. And so it is also an option to explore. And ultimately, it's not about role-playing sex. That's not something that I would ever bring into a game, but it is role-playing intimate connections between characters. And that's what's really important. We see it with Lorana and Tannis. They don't ever have sex, but they definitely have intimate relationship issues that they both have to deal with. Kitiara and Tannis, they do have sex. And of course, it has repercussions for the entire team as Kitiara insists on, you know, hunting them down for the, um, the Everman and such, but also ultimately to try to get Tannis back and then to make him hurt because he hurt her by leaving. Um, and then you have that as a motivational factor, the romance factor of people wanting to connect with certain characters. I mean, Riverwind constantly wanted to reconnect with Goldmoon, but she felt like she had to embody herself as the chieftain's daughter until she handed off the... Um, um, Dissubmission call to Elistan. And then finally, she could then no longer live for the greater good, but for her own intimate connection with Riverwind. And she no longer had to be, of course, um, you know, Chieftain's daughter. She could now just be Goldmoon. So it is difficult sometimes to get players to react romantically in with each other. Sometimes you're just going to have to rely on the idea of using an NPC to fill in that role and then just sort of play it up, not be creepy about it, but try to, you know, let the player know that this is an opportunity for role playing that they could pick up if they wanted to. I love stuff like that. And again, it's an integral part of what it means in a Dragonlands game for me. Now, these are just points that were presented in the Fifth Age adventure. Uh, I'm sorry, Fifth Age sort of setting book, like book one of the, the Fifth Age box set. But I think everyone can agree that those abstract ideas are very integral to what it means to a Dragonlance story and how having them all together actually make it feel like Dragonlance more than anything else. And then, of course, you have the setting issues where, um, you know, War of the Lance, of course, is going to feel like Dragonlance because it's the War of the Lance era. Um, you riding and flying dragons, that is not something that you find in other settings at all. I talked about it last week, and I'm sure I'll talk about it ad nauseum forever because it's such a fun idea for a player to just get on Dragonback. I bought the Talada's Adventure Modules because there's a Dragon Rider template in one of them, and I just and it was a second edition module, and I just wanted to play a Dragon Rider. I thought it would be super awesome, especially because there wasn't a lot of um, stories in Talada's. You know, certainly there was never any trilogy of books written until the 2000s set in Talada's, and so you could pretty much do whatever you want. If you're going to be doing it in War of the Lands era, well then, you know, of course, there's certain 
times and areas where you could do dragon riding, but otherwise it's not really canon. And, you know, of course your home games do whatever you want, but for most people, they want to make sure it fits in with the overall sort of established timeline of the world for it to feel like the setting as well. Hey, JB, thanks for joining live. All right, so let's see. Dragon's game should have some elements of dystopian fantasy adventure mixed in with a war of battle. Yeah, I think that's a great, great example. And arguably why Dragonlance always has another big world event because that's how it started and that was the fourth dragon war like we had three dragon wars before that you know first of all it was just the dragons against each other then it was the elves trying to steal the dragon's forest and they succeeded and then it was Huma and uh you know banishing the queen of darkness and so when we get to the war of the lands that's the fourth dragon war and of course it goes on to the Chaos War and then it goes on to the War of Souls and et cetera, et cetera. But that's a big part of what it means to have a Dragonlance campaign. That large-scale combat idea, whether or not you play that aspect of it is, is less than relevant. But the fact that it is happening, you know, that's another thing that doesn't really happen in a whole lot of other campaigns. I mean, adventure module dependent, but that's really the bread and butter of Dragonlance. Um, you can suck it up if you don't like someone else's character choices. Yeah, no, you're right, JB, for sure. Okay, so if you guys have any other ideas about what makes a Dragonlance story Dragonlance, put it in chat, and, and we can sort of riff a little bit on it. Uh, I'm going to move on here to the other part of the discussion that I had planned for today. And ultimately, that was starter sets. So let's let's move over to this. So Dragonlance Nexus posted this, and it looks like there was a, another a Twitter mention here about it that instigated this blog post. But kudos to Dragonlance Nexus for putting out not just that Twitter post, but also extra information that they had that was not um, represented there. So in 3.5 edition, there was going to be a Dungeons and Dragons starter set, a sort of Dragonlance adventure game. And of course, we've seen a lot of these with um, Dungeons and Dragons, the old school version, in order to teach people the game. We didn't see a whole lot of them with advanced Dungeons and Dragons, though there were some. Um, and I want to talk about one here in a second, but I wanted to present this because this is not new. This is, I mean, the fact is this was never fully created. You know, it was in the planning process, but they lost the license to the IP from Wizards of the Coast and they ended up not going through with it. But you can see all of this stuff on Dragonlance Nexus's website, and I highly recommend you go check it out because it's great. Um, but it has a bunch of information about that starter set that never was. However, there was another one, and that was this, DLS1 New Beginnings. So there's a time when Dragonlance, I'm gonna turn this off here so I can focus. So there's a time when uh, Dragonlance met its end, and that was Dungeons & Dragons, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 1.5 edition. Um, DLA Dragonlance Adventures came out as a hardbound book, and that was the end of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons as TSR was concerned with. They ended up making a second edition so that they could then, of course, sell more products, develop more campaign worlds, and make elaborate box sets that they would do nothing but lose money in the manufacturing and selling of. But um, 
this was the point where they wanted to sort of relaunch Dragonlance. Because again, DL 1 through, uh, I think ultimately 16, because they had two uh, adventure modules, uh, sort of like, um, uh, it was modules with a bunch of different adventures in it. So uh, they had two of those after the original 14 of the Dragonlance War of the Lands campaign. And then the DLA book was released as sort of a campaign book so that you could just, uh, you know, do whatever you want in the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons world space. But TSR realized that that was one of the biggest money-making IPs they had, and it was now complete. And so they needed to release something new in second edition, not only to help launch the new edition, but also sell more of this burgeoning IP. And so they came up with the idea of Time of the Dragon box set, a whole new continent on Kryn called Talitas. They needed, though, a bunch of adventures, a bunch of uh, content in order to really flesh that world out. And so they did. They put out, I believe, ultimately, it was two different um, adventure trilogies that were just isolated in Talitas. And then they came up with this, New Beginnings by Mark Akers. So let me talk a little bit about this before we dive in here. So this was published in, um, so Time of the Dragon was 1989, and ultimately, it didn't really do well. Dragonlance fans, they were used to Ancelon. They were used to the War of the Lance era. That's what Dragonlance was to them. So when Time of the Dragon came out, they're like, well, what the hell is this? There's no books written about this. This is not Dragon. This, this isn't even the same IP at all. And there's this big backlash. So ultimately what TSR did was release the Heroes of the Lance box set to bring it back to Ancelon. And then, you know, all was right with the world for the most part in the Dragonlance space. A lot of people had problems with that box set as well for various continuity and error issues. But Talidas, they tried their best to support in, in any way that they could. They had, um, in 1990, DLR1 with other lands. Um, DLR2, Talidas the Minotaurs, was in 1991. And ultimately, New Beginnings would then be released as a sort of a subsetting idea. And it was intended to market Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition as a starter set. So when you look at this actual campaign uh, module, I mean, you have chapter one is how to create a 2nd Edition Talitas character. That's not something that they ever did before. Not with Dragonlance. And in Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, there was only a, a few smattering of you know, how to play the game in Advanced Dungeons Dragons 2nd Edition up until this time. So this was really the first time in a long time that Advanced Dungeons Dragons 2nd Edition had a how-to-play Dungeons & Dragons game, and it was already set in Dragonlance in Talitas, which is kind of cool. So it had stuff like not just how to create a brand new character in this, you know, game system, but also how do you actually play a character? Like tips for beginning players. How, what is role-playing? And they really did a whole chapter on this. Um, and then tips on role-playing as chapter three. And then, of course, uh, you have an introduction and three whole chapters devoted just to explaining what the game of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons is and how to play it. Then you get into a what-would-you-do adventure, a choose-your-own-adventure. So this walks you through of creating your own character. It has its own character sheet in the back of it. Um, here, I can actually show you it. It's a little wonky looking too. Very sort of stripped down looking. Hey, Goldman, how you doing? Good to see you. 
and then they had a second page of it too. If you look at this, it's just this. They this is the quality that they released with the actual product. And they're like, go ahead and copy this for your characters. Meanwhile, there's already been second edition character sheets out there. Why don't you just copy those? It would. It just. I don't know. This is very strange to me. It looked very strange. Okay, so let's uh, get back to this here. So you've created your first character. Now they want to walk you through the actual game. And so chapter four is a solo adventure of encounters. It's just, here's a setup for an encounter. What are you going to do with it? And then you literally just play it yourself. If it's combat, then you roll all the combat stuff yourself. It walks you through it. And it actually has a, what would an average role player have done in that situation opposite. So let's look at this really quick because I found this really, really fascinating. So you have initial questions. What would you estimate this man's armor class to be? So it gives you a, a premise of this encounter. And this is a warrior encounter, a stand-up fight. And then what would you do? Um, what would you estimate the man's armor class to be? Is your estimate correct? What do you think you would need to roll in order to hit this foe? Because of course, you don't know their stats. And so you have to just sort of guess what they are as you do in the game anyway. Um, if he hits you, how much damage would he probably do? And you're just sort of filling this information out based on nothing, just based on the preceding three chapters thus far, because again, this is supposed to be your very first ever adventure. And then it has this upside down section that you just then reverse and read what other people would have done in that situation or the answers that they would have given to those encounters. So it says here, um, once you've taken a stab at the questions, why not have a stab at the Thenolite? And again, this is in Taladas, and so Thenolites are, are one of the organizations. Um, so you have an infantryman with a Thenolite, and it has all their stats and stuff there. I just love that. They, they have this sort of choose-your-own adventure and with full Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition rules and what they expect a player would do in that situation on the off chance that you did something different. I don't think that was too heavy handed in that, you know, this is what you have to do in these situations. It's just giving you a primer of, no, this is what the average person would probably do or say or think or whatever. But again, you have total freedom to do whatever you want. So after this, and there's a bunch of them, as you can see, you know, a whole bunch of different encounter questions and uh, scenarios that you can just sort of play through. This seriously is something I do want to, I do want to get, into doing, but I just don't really have time right now to do it. Um, I do want to show you this too, because one thing that's really great about, um, one thing that's really great about, of course, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons in general is that it encourages you, if you're going to play in a setting, to have a whole bunch of different types of books. And so in this one, it's saying, look, if you're going to play this, then you should probably have the second edition player's handbook, and you should probably have access to the, um, um, oh, where is it? The Talada's uh, first booklet in that box set. And I can't seem to find it just as I'm scanning it right here. But um, it just tells you the different books that you're going to need in order to really fully be able to play this adventure and understand how to create your character. And then it says for DMs, this is the other book that you should also probably have with you. Because all the monster stats are already represented in these volumes, you don't really need the monster manual, so you just need the Dungeon Master's Guide 2nd Edition in order to fully run the game. And that's where the last chapter, Chapter 5, comes into. Because where Chapter 4 is a 
play it on your own solo adventure. Chapter five is a very short, but straight up Talita's adventure for a group of players. And so if you are coming into this as a player, you can read all the way through chapter four and play the game, but you're supposed to sort of step away from it and allow the DM to then take you through chapter five of your first adventure in Talita's with another group of other players and just re-explore this again. This is something that I don't know a lot of people who knew that this was a How to Play Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition starter set. They just thought this was like a rando module that no one ever really played. But as soon as I found that out, I was amazed that this had been out there for a long time. And it's a great way not only to go back to an, uh, a version of the game, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, which is great. Second edition is a great game system. But also an exposure to Dragonlance through Talidas rather than what everyone knows from the books, the War of the Lands area in Ancelon. I mean, that's a really cool way of doing it. Ultimately, it didn't help because people didn't really like Talitas. They didn't really understand the different cultural interactions because they didn't have any damn books written about it, you know? I mean, it wouldn't be until the Blade of the Tiger trilogy came out in, you know, 2000s or whatever it was that they finally gave us some really, really great storytelling in Talitas that then reignited interest. And of course, if you read comics... Reva Silvercrown goes to Talitas and she hangs out there for a number of issues. But um, yeah, it's just been crazy. Malcolm, how you doing? Thanks for joining live. So did you guys know about this Dungeons & Dragons starter set? This module, New Beginnings? Like, I think it's really funny that everyone was sort of up in arms about the idea of the promise of a 3.5 edition starter set in Dragonlance, but there was already one in <laughs> Dragonlance set in 2nd edition, which in my humble opinion, <laughs> was infinitely better than 3rd edition Dungeons & Dragons. 3rd edition was brutal, man. It was just, just power gaming 101. All right, that's really all I had for this episode. I just wanted to sort of goof around and talk about that. So let's, let me look at this really quick. Because I have some other notes here that I thought was really interesting. Um... So New Beginnings was an important milestone for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. It was not only the first truly introductory AD&D adventure in a few years, but it was also the most introductory release ever. It had one major limitation, and that's the beginner piece, is that it's very focused not just on Dragonlance, but on the continent of Talidas. And so that really limits the not only amount of gaming world that you can sort of come up with your own ideas to play your own campaigns in, because they didn't have a whole lot of modules compared to what they had set in in Ancelon, so you could easily just sort of run through the modules and then you're just sort of stuck here, you know, with your hands in the air going, well, what else are we going to do here? <laughs> Is this all Dragonlance has to offer? Um, the 24 pages mark one of the most extensive and basic introductions ever for the Dungeons & Dragons game, and that was in this supplement, which I thought was very interesting. And it's all set in a village of Boramium, in the League of Minotaurs, obviously not much detail can appear in the five-page adventure, but it is interesting that they flesh the world out enough for you so that if you do, of course, have the Time of the Dragon back box set, you can then just sort of extrapolate adventures from there. Here's a question, and, and maybe I should do this as a topic. Oh, I haven't, Gold Moon. It comes out next week for the public, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um... Do you normally play Dragonlance through modules or just through homemade campaigns? 
because I've always played it through homemade campaigns. I very rarely have ever played it through modules. And I find that very interesting because the whole idea of Advanced Sons and Dragons was that after you bought the core books, they had to convince you to buy modules in order to extend the life of that game edition. And once they sort of ran the life cycle, they had to come up with a whole new either campaign setting or move the edition forward, which, you know, once Wizards took over, they definitely did. Now three times, right? Hey, Michael, how you doing, man? Uh, let's see, what was the bee's armor class? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, that's a good question. I didn't look. Do you know or are able to recommend any rules for player playing an Ire to Ogre in 5th edition? Interesting. They've been most interesting thing in Dragonlance for you. That's interesting. I don't, in Darius, thanks for joining live. I don't know if the Dragonlance Nexus has 5th edition rules for Irida. I think they might. And so you might want to check out their Castlehoff's Pouches of Everything collection because that would have it if it does in fact exist. But Irida, as far as role-playing goes, I mean, again, depending on the era, because most of them were completely wiped out at the end of the Chaos War because their island was destroyed by Chaos. Um, but then there's the Mishu, which were in the, um, the Other Lands adventure module, the sort of Spine of Talada's series of islands. There's a whole different separate Irida race that is not as mystical and magical. They're infinitely more primitive that exist that you could sort of play off of. But if you're thinking of Irida as the traditional version of Irida, shape-shifting, um, I mean, as far as role-playing goes, I would highly recommend, no matter what era, keep them as secret as possible. You know, don't let people, like you would not want to out yourself as an Irida ogre. That would be like the worst thing because not only do people in general think that you're an ogre, so you're a monster, um, they identify ogres as evil. So you would just be seen as an evil creature no matter what you do. That's just the stigma of the ogre. And then any evil ogre would see you as a traitor to their own race because, again, you left with Egrain back in the Age of Dreams, I think it was, and fled to uh, the Spine of Talidas initially. So not only are you seen as evil by the good guys, you're seen as evil by the bad guys. So there's literally no upside to culturally, from a societal standpoint, to playing an Irida, you're straight up setting yourself up as an outcast. And as far as like playing the game, doesn't really matter because you just do whatever you want. But um, I think that would be a really interesting, that would be an interesting uh, way of exploring character development, right? What's the impact being an outcast from your own species and every other people on Kryn, what does that have psychologically how does that affect you? You know, it's got to really eat at your sense of identity because no one sees you as what you actually are, an individual. They see you as a part of a monolith that in every case is bad. So do you take the avenue of playing it up as I have to prove that I'm a good person and that all Irida are not evil? Or do you take the stance of, well, I don't even care. I'm not even going to let them know that I'm Arda and just, be, you know, do the changeling form the entire time and just live in anonymity. I mean, it's an interesting thought experiment and I would love to hear what, you know, where you sort of land as far as 
character background and uh, moving forward with it. I think that's interesting. Oh, you're very welcome, Nate. Thanks for tuning in live. Good to see you, man. Uh, you're just getting your players into the setting. Oh, dude. Oh, man. Well, this is the perfect episode if you're playing 2nd Edition. Um, if you're playing 5th Edition, there's... Um, I think 5th Edition, as far as the game, is is one of the best to get players into playing Dragonlance because there's not a huge backlog of adventures that they'd have to think about. You don't really have to read a whole bunch of books. And the world-building information in that Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen book is like a chapter. So they could easily read it, digest it, and get a very, very basic, albeit skewed in my opinion, view of what Dragonlance is so that they can then just jump in and start playing with the very stripped down basic rules of the game. And I, I, the irony is not lost on me where I'm saying that it's a stripped down easy rule system and I constantly struggle with it every game that I run. That's just, that's, my mind is AD&D, ADD2. And so when, I, when I'm thinking of things, I think of them through that lens and it, it makes it a little bit more challenging for me just to like dump my gaming knowledge of previous editions and just focus on exactly what's presented in fifth edition. Because some of the rules, they're optional. Facing and um, flanking, those are optional rules. Feats, which were a staple in third edition, and I think they're even in fourth edition, they're not even present in fifth edition except as an optional rule. And of course in Dragonlance, Every first level character starts with a feat, and so you sort of are forced into the <laughs> more advanced version of 5th edition stripped down basic game. I think that's why most people have a hard time, maybe, you know, in, in, in my, anecdotally, in my age range of players, why we have such a hard time with 5th edition is because we expect it to be infinitely more complex than it actually is. For example, we had this... Um, exploration of the benefit of using a rope in order to climb in fifth edition in the last game and after actually looking at the rules there is no benefit to having a rope versus not having a rope and climbing like there's no rule for it so it's really just whether or not the rope allows you to attempt to climb or not like you don't get like a plus five or advantage or anything like that I found that very, very fascinating because that's environmental interaction is a huge part of every other edition of the game. Like that's combat was just one aspect of playing the game in fifth edition. It's the only aspect fourth edition did a wonderful job of presenting skill challenges in a way that previous editions never even imagined them. And I really love 4th edition for the skill challenge inclusion. They, it extrapolated out to the saga system for Star Wars role-playing game as well, which is very 4th edition centric. And it was just a great inclusion to it. 5th edition, there's nothing like that in it. They just stripped it all away and gave you really basic stuff. And all 5th edition seems to be is just combat and skill challenges. And that's it. And skill challenge is not meaning like the fourth edition version. It's just, well, you want to charm me. And so I roll a die. And if I get over or under the DC, then that's it. So that, so ability checks is really what I'm getting down to. That's, that, that's pretty easy for a new player to pick up. And arguably, probably why fifth edition is so popular and Dungeons and Dragons has flourished under fifth edition 
as opposed to previous editions. Of course, I, I also think a lot of this has to do with cultural shifts and norms shifting. Um, being a nerd isn't as ostracizing as it was when I was a kid. Um, it's just more accepted nowadays or people are, just seem to be more tolerant unless of course you look at the news or social media and then of course that <laughs> all comes up as a, a straight up absurdity. Let's see. Um, and they could watch the primer video you made. Yeah, yeah, I have a lot of videos on here about the setting, but also the setup for the War of the Lance. So that's, uh, I think, a good one. Let's see, you're, you're using the mod exactly because they wanted a more gritty setting. Maybe even going to use the board game set for the primary battles. I enjoy the board game a lot. Um, I haven't been successful in every ses uh, session of playing it, but it's fun. Like, I, I enjoy it. And I'm talking about the Warriors of Crin board game for 5th edition. So we're playing that with our campaign. And hopefully we get to play it this coming se uh, session as well. Because it's going to be a good, good scenario. But um, it's a fun one. So if you get a chance, I highly recommend it. I, also, if you're playing 1st edition, Derek and I both together played Battle System. Which was, at that time, its version of mass combat. And we're planning on doing a Battle System second edition at some point so that we can sort of you know sort of uh, compare contrast first and second edition battle system rules i don't remember there being a battle system situation with third edition for dragonlance there might be something in one of the source books that i'm just not as familiar with but I don't remember a mass combat system in third edition, like battle system for first and second, or Warriors of Crin for, for uh, fourth. There was mass combat rules for Saga edition, Saga setting, Saga system, a role-playing game, which I never played, but that's another one that I'd like to try to explore again sometime. It'd be kind of cool. So let's see, creating a character or campaign, which do folks enjoy more? Ooh. That's a good question, Michael. And I think it depends on whether or not they're DMs or not. <laughs> because, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, this is for me personally. I, I enjoy making characters because I like setting up ideas about backstory and character development and motivation and stuff like that. Um, and I really like having a, an, a, an era and a setting specific type character. But I love weaving a campaign together with the characters' backstories. That, for me, is the most fun playing this game. Like, I like setting up situations and seeing the players overcome them and, you know, whatever. But role-playing character in a world setting and having the campaign wrap around them so they feel like heroes and they feel important and having an impact on the world at large, that's bread and butter for me as a dungeon master. I love that more than anything else. And of course, that's one of the reasons why Dragonlance is so great, because characters do have an impact on the world around them. Infinitely more than, you know, some other settings. I mean, most other settings, you're just like, if it's Ravenloft, you're just trying to survive. Dark Sun, you're trying to survive. You're not going to change the world. But if you're playing Dragonlance, you can <laughs> straight up influence the world. It's cool. You like the mass combat system in D&D Basic? I've never played that. I've heard someone mention that to me because I had said something about battle system being the first and then someone came up and corrected me about that. But I, I've never played it or even looked into it, to be honest. I don't even know what edition it's 
what, what release it's shown up in. But I would like to look at that. Um, personally, characters for Endarius, nice. Characters are fun to make, man. And arguably more fun to play, hopefully. What I love about making characters and, and playing them is seeing how they start out and then where they end up in the campaign. Wildly different. I, had a, I was playing in third edition a psionicist. I've always liked psionics. I seem to be one of the only people, but like even in first edition, I played with psionics. But I, I loved, um, I played a psionicist who was traumatized and he couldn't, he didn't understand where his powers were manifesting from. He didn't know he had control over them. And he was just sort of like a monk character, but he used psionics instead of any other type of combat. But again, he had suffered so much trauma early on that when it manifested, he sort of checked out mentally and then he would just sort of return after whatever happened happened. And it was a very difficult character to play with other people because they were like trying to drag out of me as a player. Why don't you tell us our characters? Why don't you tell our characters that your character can do this? And I'm like, because he doesn't know. Like the whole hook of the character is that he doesn't understand what's happening. He's not in full control. And so sometimes I would make choices that were not to the best interest of the group or himself because I was trying to play that character out. And the dungeon master seemed to be enjoying that drama that would inevitably ensue from those character choices. But again, it made it difficult to get along with the other players at the table because they wanted that straightforward, I'm a fighter, this is what I can do, sort of meta tactical combat game. And I was really trying to dive headfirst into the role-playing side of it. And it was just at odds with everyone else. So understanding how people like to play, of course, ultimately feeds into whether or not your character is going to be fun <laughs> to play in a game or not. So just selling a story, you were trying to make a continent south of Ancelon. It was almost finished south of Ancelon. That'd be your... <laughs> your ice reach. Um, the Karain threw you for a loop being a thousand miles to the south and you had to revise. Yeah, the... Um, oh, I could probably just pull it up right now. The Atlas to the Dragonlance World from first edition gave us a really wonderful look at the globe of Kryn. Let me see if I can pull this up real quick. Before other worlds ever did. So let's see. Um, where are you? This is such a great book. If you guys don't have it already, you should. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful edition. So you get your pre-cataclysm map and then your post-cataclysm. And it's really great to sort of pinpoint, like I was doing a, I can't remember if it is this coming Tuesday or if it already came out. I have an episode about Kerr, the land of Kerr, which is right around, oh, let me see if I can have this represent on the screen here. Right around this area is where Kerr is, the, the nation of Kerr. Anyway, I was doing a, a whole episode on Kerr and trying to find it in pre-cataclysm maps is interesting because again it completely changed and Kerr itself went completely underwater for a time because of uh, the cataclysm which I thought was interesting. Here we are. 
So you get this really wonderful look about the globe of, of Kryn itself. And of course, it's in this space right here that we have the, well, I guess it would be up in this area right here. You'd have your spine of Talidas, and then Talidas, as far as the globe is concerned, would be, you know, up around this area. But uh, this shows you a wonderful view of, you know, where Crane would be at this sort of south pole and your latitude lines and, I don't know, I get them mixed up. Is that longitude that go <laughs> vertically <laughs> or latitude? I think it's longitude, right? Anyway, it's just a cool way of seeing the globe, you know? And then, of course, then other worlds, let me see if I can pull that up and do a little compare and contrast because that was really fun. Otherworlds did a great job of presenting the globe as well. Um, here it is. Other lands, not other worlds. Come on now. That's Karain. I think maybe it's at the very end of it. Where are you? There it is. So you can see you have your South Pole, but again, it's just presented in a very different way. But just in order to, you know, really latch on to where on the globe of Kryn that that continent is. I just love this globe map so much. I think it's so beautiful. And this is just timeless. It's fantastic. But that's what I love about Dragonlance, is that it's it's not just a dungeon. You know, arguably you could just be like, well, Zaxaroth, that was in DL1. That's that's Dragonlance. No, 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 no. It's so much bigger than that. And that just, it's, it's a promise of multicultural experiences in a literal world that has so many different types of, of characters and regions and everything. I mean, ultimately, if you want to do a desert roaming campaign, you don't have to go over to some you know, Dark Sun or uh, um, era of, area of Forgotten Realms, you could just go to Kerr. And they have hundreds of miles of dunes with swallowed ancient Istarian ruins that you could explore. You could do a whole Aladdin play, you know, like Al-Kadim used to be a thing. Um, you could do a whole desert adventure of uncovering these uh, uh, ruins of a dungeon of an old Istar where, you know, maybe there were some artifacts underneath it. And you could just go exploring the deserts and have a really great adventure. If you want to do a high seas pirate adventure, Kryn is the best place for that. We got the Blood Sea. We got Blood Sea Minotaurs. You have entire uh, uh, Ergothian cultures centered around seafaring. I mean... This is a great world for all sorts of stuff. If you want to do just an ice world, we have a whole South Pole here <laughs> with, with the subterranean underdark of Karain if you want to explore that aspect of it. You don't have to go to Menzo Baranzen in Forgotten Realms. We'd have it right here in Dragonlands. So the best of every setting about its you know, diversity of, of uh, uh, geography and regions and societies is ever present already in Kryn on Dragonlance or in Dragonlance on Kryn. <laughs> so there's literally no reason why you would have to uh, try out a different campaign world because every type of game you want to run could be done here. You want to do horror? Visit Zaman or Skullcap or go up to Talidas. Talidas has some amazing like primordial swamps with elithids, you know, the Yagol. 
um, with their own like ziggurat structures. If you want to do like a Cthulhu type, you know, uh, swamp crawling adventure that's just filled with dystopian horror, perfect for it. I mean, it's got so much really great stuff in Tall anyway, but I, I, I always get frustrated and people are like, well, I want to play this type of a campaign, so I'm going to go to a different campaign setting. You really don't have to. Educate yourself a little bit about Dragonlance and you're going to learn that Dragonlance has literally everything that you could want. And because it's so familiar, it has such a rich history, it has such a rich tapestry of character development and options, there's no reason to play anything else like at all. All you have to choose is which edition of the game you want to run it in. And that's really what it comes down to. All right. Well, I've already gone over what I was planning on doing. Um, thank you guys so much. Uh, thanks for tuning in, Derek. It was good to see you. And for everyone else tuning in live and interacting, I really do appreciate your time and attention. These Dragonlance Hangouts are just meant to have a little bit of fun talking Dragonlance. And if you have ideas for other Dragonlance Hangouts, you know, let me know in the comments or shoot uh, a message up here in chat. And I can use that as a topic to sort of discuss more in depth for the next Dragonlance Hangout. But it's really just about fun. So I hope you guys have a fantastic day. And uh, I don't know, until uh, we can get together again and uh, play a little Dragonlance or share some Dragonlance stories. Salon Javar. <laughs>